Welcome to the Alliance Life podcast, spotlighting emerging issues, examples of good practice and innovation taking place within health and social care in Scotland. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Kath Cooney. I'm Director of uh, Development and Improvement at the Health and Social Care Alliance in Scotland, otherwise known as the Alliance. So I'd like to welcome our digital audience this afternoon from across Scotland's health and social care to this Alliance Live podcast. And just to give you a wee bit of a background to this Alliance Live series, the purpose of the series is to connect our members to experts in the field across health and social care, to look at current issues, examples of good practice and innovation. So this afternoon, in this time of pandemic, COVID-19, it's our pleasure to welcome Professor Jason Leach, our National Clinical Director. Um, Jason's a well-kent face at the moment across a whole range of media. So thanks, Jason, for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Thanks, Kath. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, part of your remit is around quality um, in Scotland for health and social care systems, and particularly around patient safety and person-centred care. And many of the audience will be familiar with you and your work and your connection with our Alliance membership. So the purpose of this afternoon, Jason, is for our audience and our members to hear from you about the national response to COVID-19 and how that is impacting on people living with long-term conditions, disabled people and unpaid carers in particular. And also to hear any up-to-date clinical advice that you might want to give us at this time, because it's a, it's a moving picture day by day, as you know. So the process that we're going to undertake is that we at the Alliance um, put out a digital call across our membership and our membership includes those groups. It's people living with long-term conditions, disabled people and unpaid carers and the organisations that work for and with those members. And as you won't be surprised to hear, we got a lot of questions and I believe today there's even more coming in. So we'll, we'll struggle, I think, to cover all of the questions. Well, you can maybe, but, just, do the, you can maybe just do the easy one, Scarf. Let's just do that. Uh, I, I'm not sure about that, Jason. You know me too well. Uh, we've worked together for, for long enough. But the, I understand that you're happy that anything that we don't cover, we can uh, forward to your office and there can of be course. a response. Thank you very much. So, um, so to begin, um, I'd like to look at primary care. There's a, some questions coming in around the DNRs that are being sent out from GP practices. So what we've heard are some reports from people that are being contacted at home by GP practices and asked to sign DNRs. And that can be very upsetting for people. So what's the national guidance on this? And how can we ensure that local practice follows that national guidance? So I, I would be very upset too if that had happened to me or a member of my family, let me be crystal clear. The, the guidance hasn't changed. What has changed is the virus. And the virus has caused these conversations to raise in profile, not, not in content, if that, if that makes sense. So the, the position remains exactly as you would expect it to be. Uh, all anticipatory care, all conversations about end-of-life care should, should be done in a compassionate and caring way. Ma many of them won't include... I do not resuscitate conversation at all. Some of them may. That may be an appropriate thing to do. I've done it in my, in my surgical job with patients and families, young and old, depending on disease and condition, 
and, and this group watching this uh, now or in the future understand that perfectly well. I, I, I was disappointed to see some of that done in a, in a blanket kind of uncompassionate type way. We are in a new world where technology and it has replaced face-to-face. -face. So that, that sometimes does make these conversations a little bit more tricky, but it doesn't make them any less compassionate. So I, I actually hope that one of the things that will come from this is a more open conversation about end-of-life care. I, I have sought that conversation for many years, not because of COVID, because it's the right thing to do for families and, and patients and residents of care homes and other places. So I, I think the conversations are acceptable to have, but they must be done in a way that takes into account personal circumstances, takes into account the context that that person is living with, whether they live with mental health challenges or dementia or no family or a huge family. So I, I can absolutely guarantee there are no blanket decisions made on age, on disability, on any individual element. There are, of course, very serious and difficult conversations that have to happen every single day in our health and social care system. And many watching this will have those conversations. Many of them, many of you are professionals and will be involved in those conversations. That, that's acceptable. Okay. Um, thinking in terms of social care, we've had a number of uh, questions coming in um, that despite the offer of support from Scottish Government to ensure that local authorities and health and social care partnerships continue to deliver social care services. We've heard a number of reports from some areas that packages are being cut and removed, sometimes with little or no notice for people, and that further cuts may occur. What do you think can be done about this? Again, I'm, I'm disappointed to, to hear that. And if there are individual cases that we need to look into, we are, of course, uh, very, very happy to do that. In fact, social care has had to do more. Uh, the delayed discharge story of the last six weeks is astonishing. Just like the conversations we're having about doubling and trebling intensive care capacity, at the other part of the health and social care system, and we, we've halved the delays who are, that I've, I and many others have been trying to uh, help with for years, and it's taken a pandemic to help us get that. Now, many of them have gone home rather than to care homes, the packages have to then be in place to allow those people to thrive and not immediately have to come back to hospital with frailty or whatever happens. So it, this isn't a defence, but in their defence, the integrated joint boards are working at a pace that is just remarkable compared to where we were six weeks ago. So I, I, I know they don't want anybody to slip through those cracks and individual stories, of course, should be shared into the local leadership. And if they are not resolved, they should be, they should be raised with us and we'll, we'll be very happy to look into them. But social care packages should be very, very carefully handled, compassionately, and, and all of those other elements. The other thing we've added in here, of course, is a nasty infectious disease. So all interactions, whether they're with GPs, whether they're with community nurses or unpaid carers, the nature of those interactions has changed, Kath, and it's changed mm -hmm. overnight. So we learn more about this virus every day. We learn how it reacts. We learn how people should behave. So some of that, I think, is probably a response to the fear and the worry about what this virus can do to you as an individual. Maybe you're the carer. Maybe you're the social worker. So, so we're trying to get as much of that knowledge out into the big system as we possibly can so people can help help those they help but do it safely. 
And what would be the mechanism for someone at a local le level, Jason, um, to raise those concerns with their, their IGB or health and social care partnership? Will it be different in each area? Well, it shouldn't be that different. So there are managers of that social care setting in each place. And I, I don't know them all by name. I know the chief officers, but the chief officers should, you could escalate to the chief officers, but it wouldn't be where I would start. So I would have thought local management levels and the alliance, I imagine, has connections into all of those places. And if not, then the chief officers of the integrated services are, are where that real senior executive leadership lies. And I'd be very surprised if they couldn't resolve it. But if they can't resolve it, then I think it has to come to the, the government. Okay. Um, I've been sitting in, in the Glasgow City Health and Social Care Partnership Community Resilience Meeting, and I know that these issues are being raised there in great efforts to make connection I'm, with I'm families, sure that's as true you everywhere. say. They, yes. No, nobody, nobody is deliberately making the vulnerable more vulnerable, but let's not, let's not be complacent either. So there are pieces of the country that are isolated. There are people in now new circumstances, maybe recently discharged from hospital, or they have a family member with COVID symptoms, or they have the four kids who used to be in school are now home, and one of them is a teenager with a disability. Or, so, so families are not, it's, it's not like you're reading the novels. Families are complex. Some of, them are, some of them are more vulnerable than others. Some deal with addiction. Some deal with all kinds of other stuff and chaos that's going on. So we have to be sensitive to what people actually find themselves in. Would it be helpful at this point to say a wee bit about the new helpline that was launched yesterday, Jason? Yeah, so, so remember there are, there are principally three groups of people. We've divided the population completely artificially, of course, into three groups based on the risk of illness from the virus. So group number one, 160,000 people who are in the shielded group, those who have reduced immunity. So that is chemotherapy, immunological conditions, it's people with solid organ transplants. They've all had individual letters with, I'm afraid, very severe restriction. So very strong advice about staying in. And we've provided also, so if they need it, we've provided actual support to them to get food and medicines delivered, et cetera, et cetera. So that's group number one. It's very small, but very, very important. And those people know who they are. There are ways of getting onto that list if you believe you've been missed but it's not a list you want to go on to lightly because it's three months and it's proper shielding. Group number two is the group that we did some more work for yesterday. That's about 1.6 million in Scotland. And that's if you're pregnant, if you have a disability of certain kinds, if you're vulnerable in some other way, if you get the flu jag for health reasons, a number of other categories. And those people in the main have been told to socially isolate as much as possible. So stay in really as much as you possibly can. So my, my parents are in that group, my 79 year old parents, one of whom has quite severe COPD. So they've been at home, food deliveries from my sister in the main, going out for a walk for half an hour every day, but pretty much isolated, no visits, no, no connection with the outside world beyond that. They're doing church on Zoom and uh, learning all kinds of things about FaceTime. That group, if you don't have friends, family, or neighbors who can provide you with the support you need, there is a new hotline, and it's 0800 one 4000 0800 It leads directly to the local authority in which you live, and they will then help you with the support services, the food, whatever else, whatever else you might need inside that environment. 
it, it, it of course, is not for 1.6 million people. That would just be overwhelming. So we need it to be for the people who can't get the support from friends, families, or neighbors. So we've tried to make that clear, that, but that group are also very important to us because they are very vulnerable to this horrific, horrible disease. And um, we had a specific question in relation to the helpline come in from a person who had already received a shielding letter and responded asking for help with shopping and with medication uplift, but they hadn't received any feedback yet or support. So they're asking, should they now contact this new helpline or should they hold back? The two lists. Number, list, number one list, shielding. So they have, a different, they have a different set of circumstances entirely with, and the instructions are all on the, leaf, on the letter they got. If that isn't working, they should try again. If it continues to not work, then they should either contact their care team. So that might be their chemotherapy people. It might be their transplant team. <coughs> Excuse me, Kath. Or... It might be the GP. The, the, other, the other number will help, but it's really for the second group. But the shielded group could call it, and the local authority may then be able to make some connections to help them. But the instructions for the shielded group are in the letter that they got. And I'm sorry to hear that they haven't had a response. They should, they should try again. Okay. Um, talking about shielding and high risk, we've had a question about if your partner or spouse or someone in your home is in the vulnerable vulnerable group should you also remain at home to decrease the risk of infection and if so getting home delivery for shopping has been impossible despite registering with the shielding list so we're hearing that a few times that folks have already registered with shielding but not yet had the response and maybe a bit of confusion and 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 between what you know the guidance some of the language can you know with, with the best will in the world in terms of health literacy Am I vulnerable? Am I shielded? Yeah. It can be confusing. Two, two separate problems there. The, first, the, the second problem is the same as the previous question. So yes. if, you are, if you are shielded and you can't get food from any other source, if your neighbours can't bring it and your daughter can't bring it or a neighbour, then you, you, the instructions for how to fix that are on the letter. And it's different companies. It's not Asda and Sainsbury's. It's actually the companies who normally provide the food to the restaurant sector and you'll remember, of course, that the restaurant sector is closed down. So we have created new contracts with them to deliver food to that shielded group of individuals. So that instruction is in the letter. And again, I'm disappointed if that hasn't been responded to, but, but try, try again. Second problem is a really difficult one that, that that question asks. And that is, what do you do in a household where one person is shielded? So this is not good news. Every movement out of that house is risk. Every movement. So the best scenario, so I have, a, I have really good friends uh, where he is in the shielded group and he had a solid organ kidney transplant a number of years ago and is on immunotherapy to, to stop that transplant failing. His wife is not in the shielded group. They have decided that they will stay at home, no, no outside world, people will bring supplies, and that's the best answer. If you must leave, then you've got to keep the other person separate as much as you can. So that means separate towels. It means separate bathrooms if you've got them. It means separate bedrooms if you've got them. I realize that's not possible for everybody. I understand not everybody lives in a three-bedroom detached house in the wilderness with a lovely garden. So not that that's where I live, just in case you thought that was a reference to my property. 
the, so, so the shielded person is at risk. So any connection with the outside world puts them more at risk. So if you possibly can, you should stay home as well. I know I, it's not all good news, Kath. This virus is yeah. horrible. And, and it is that pathway of understanding each person has their own set of circumstances. So here's another question that, that's similarly linked. So if someone is an essential worker, has an underlying health condition, but is not in receipt of a letter reshielding, can they reasonably be expected to be at work? Again, it's all about risk. It doesn't matter who you are. Connection with the outside world makes you more at risk of the virus. Public transport, work, it, anywhere. So wh whoever you are, in whichever group you are, outside world is risk. The greatest defense against this virus is your front door. So if you can work from home, you should. Doesn't matter who you are. So I'm the national clinical director of the country. I am in the main working from home. That, that's not where I would naturally, that wouldn't be my instinct. It's not where most of my work is, but I am choosing to do that. So I am only going out for essential reasons and everybody else should do the same. If you are required to go to work because you are a key worker, Maybe you keep our food supply going. Maybe you keep our electricity supply going. Or maybe you're a health and social care worker. Then, of course, you can go, but everything is risk. So wash your hands, blow your nose into your elbow, make sure you, you, you do all of the basic public health things because we're trying to break the transmission of the virus. The best way of breaking the transmission of the virus is to stay behind your front door. The second best way is to wash your hands obsessively. The next point I'm going to raise um, follows on from what you've just said around access. So blind and partially sighted people are facing some additional challenges um, during this time of pandemic and moving about safely in a way that doesn't bring them within two metres of someone out with their household. Um, how can someone with a visual impairment ensure that they're complying with social distancing and accessing supermarkets when they cannot be guided by staff and delivery slots are often booked up? weeks in advance. Do you have any guidance or advice there, Jason, that people can I, get support? I, I, don't have, I don't have much, Kath, other than common sense. I'm, I'm hoping there are organisations within and connected to the Alliance that, that would be able to help with that. I know you have many members who, both organisationally and individuals, who work with, with that sector very well. I, it would seem to me that conversations with the supermarket chains and others could, could help with that. We're finding, actually, as, as we hear stories from the community, that corner shops are often better at that kind of individual care than the big shops are, because you're maybe a bit more well-known, it's closer to your house, you, you can go, you can have a, an easier conversation. So that, that might be a way around it. And, and delivery services are not all just the main supermarkets. A lot of restaurants and others have changed their, their systems to be much more takeaway much more, and I don't just mean the normal fish and chips at your door every night. There are lots, lots of other ways of getting. So when I go on my 5K walk every day to try and get some uh, exercise, there's a couple of the restaurants have opened up, can almost like takeaway shops where you can buy pasta and milk and bread. And it may be that that's more appropriate for that community to get, to get closer to. But specific guidance for partially sighted is, is, an is an interesting topic and maybe we should pursue it uh, outside this call. Okay, we can do that. Um, 
I watched one of your, your broadcasts over the weekend and you talked about um, how health experts are trying to balance three harms. And I thought you usually described those harms, first of all, as the harm from coronavirus illness um, and, the, and deaths. Secondly, as the diseases that we're unable to treat if services become overwhelmed. And thirdly, the harms from the countermeasures. So my, my, my question is, to what extent are people of lived experience, the third sector and independent sectors, being heard as part of that expert voice that is developing and involving in, in ensuring that inequalities and human rights are at the heart of those decisions in balancing those harms? I think it's I think it's crucial. The only the only thing I would say in addition is that the pace we're working at is like nothing I've ever known, Kath. I, I mean, it's mm. the decision making is it feels like plate spinning and decision making at the same time. It is absolutely remarkably quick. So so we are responding to challenge, science, all kinds of things, and we're doing it really really quickly. And we're doing it in a new world where everybody is having to work slightly differently. The First Minister said a couple of weeks ago, if your life is normal, you've misunderstood the pandemic. And it, it's true. If your life is normal, you have misunderstood. So lived experience inside that balancing is crucial, particularly as we move into a phase, not yet, but in the next few weeks and months, we're going to move to a phase where the deaths from coronavirus is not our major harm anymore. Now we're going to be more worried. We're going to be worried about that. But we're also going to be worried about what the countermeasures have done to our business, our economy, our, our life, our social care, all of that at the one time. So we have to hear from those who have mental health challenges, who suffer domestic violence, who have addiction, all, all of those other elements and how we bring all that back online in a way that we haven't been able to during the real strong focus rightly on the harm that the virus is doing to individuals. The, the second harm, of course, is the health service doing different things. So we have stopped doing elective surgery. We've stopped a lot of outpatient care. We haven't stopped everything, and it's important people still go for their care if they possibly can, and you shouldn't be scared of going to the health service. But we're going to have to think about what that means in the next few weeks and months when we, when we restart some of that postponed care. And, and that's, going to be really, that's going to be really tricky, particularly when we still have COVID-positive patients and families in, in other bits of the National Health Service around the country. We did have a few questions from people around specifically the non-COVID conditions, and you mentioned cancellation of outpatient clinic appointments. Um, people are concerned that when it's in the stage of undiagnosis, how will that diagnosis and treatment happen in the months to come whilst COVID-19 precautions are in place? Will that happen or will it be delayed until later measures are, are loosened? We'll have, to, we'll have to think very carefully and use the evidence for when we start to activate new things. We haven't, we haven't stopped everything, remember. The health service hasn't, hasn't stopped doing diabetes or stopped doing stroke care. People who have strokes still have care today. So it's very important that if you have an asthma attack or if your kid has a fever or if something happens, then you seek healthcare appropriately and exactly as you did before. Some of it might be a little bit more electronic than it was six weeks ago. So NHS near me has been rolled out to every GP practice. A lot of outpatient clinics are now being done online. So you, so you may well have an experience a bit like this one for your next outpatient appointment, but it is still available. Some of the things we've had to postpone. So we've postponed anything that we think is low risk 
or would put the patients at more risk by doing it. And at one end, that's hips and knees and cataracts, which we, we don't want to cancel. I mean, that, they, we don't do these operations lightly. These people are in pain, they can't see. And, and other things like, like my father's injections for his macular degeneration have been canceled. But that's, that's, a, that's a risk judgment about where and how he would get there, what would happen to him when he was there. But they, they have only been postponed. They will come back. And they'll come back as we remove the countermeasures gradually, not suddenly, and things will start to catch up again. It's going to take the health service a little bit of time, of course, to catch up with that loss. And, and people will have to be patient as we, as we work through that, that backlog. Okay. And you, you made the comment uh, recently, and along with CMO, that the NHS is not shut, and the point you're just making about there are services there. But we're hearing from, from members um, that people are, are, are worried about accessing health services, they're worried about risk of infection. What do you think that we can do um, so that um, the long-term impact is minimised on people? And, and what can we do to ensure that the communication of those messages is clearer? Do you think we've come somewhere in the last few days since this was raised? We've, we've tried. We, we've learned a lot about... Uh, or I, let me make it personal, I have learned a lot about communication in the last six weeks. Not all good. We've all, we, we make mistakes in that journey. I, I'm, a, I'm a dentist and oral surgeon. I'm not a communicator, communication professional. But we've, we've tried to communicate with multiple demographics. We've done work with teenagers. We've done work with kids. We've tried to do work with the elderly and, and everything in between. Not, it turns out not everybody watches Channel 4 News and listens to the Today programme to everybody's great shock. There are, there are, I had to do Radio Clyde for the chart show for 90 minutes to get 600,000 people who listen to the chart show on Radio Clyde, it turns out. So, so the, the messages are crucial and we have to get them to the society that needs to hear them. And I think there's evidence that Scotland has listened to that. That is, the, the social distancing measures, the countermeasures, have been very effective in Scotland and in the main been very well followed. The specific information you highlight about whether the health services is open or not, I think probably at the beginning, that message didn't get through because we were telling everybody, there's a virus, be mm. safe, stay behind your front door. Now I think we've caught up a little bit with that and we're saying, no, let's be careful here. If you have chest pain, if your diabetes worsens, if your Parkinson's is worrying you, the health service remains available to you. It may look a little bit different. It may even be in a slightly different location from where you previously went, but it is still there and it will still keep you safe. In, in healthcare sectors, a lot of the people on this, watching this will, will know this. We talk about hot and cold areas, hot for infection and unsafe, cold for non-infection and safe. We do that for norovirus, we do it for Ebola, we do it for COVID-19. So the health service is available and we have safe passage into that bit of the health service that will look after you. Obviously, today's session is part of that wider involvement of third sector and people of lived experience, but the Alliance and our member organisations, we would, we would like to make the offer to be part of that communication work. And actually, before guidance is developed and before communication messages go out, we would want to work in partnership with you and the team to, to have that language, to have those messages, to disseminate to feed in and out. Is that an offer that you'd like to take up, Jason? Of course, you, you've done that. You've done that already, you and many, many others. 
the, the, my, only, my only warning, and you know this, and so does Ian and others in your organization, it's fast. Yes. It's, it's proper fast. It's faster than I've ever, ever had to work. So, so yes, of course, but, but some of that is, is happening really, really quickly. And the Alliance is perfectly capable of working fast. That's not a, that's not a suggestion that you can't, but it is, it is not a perfect world. We don't have time for short life working groups and long consultations like, like we would normally do and uh, meetings that you and I have been to before where we would have post-it notes on the wall and we would consider lots of different things over a long period and we'd come up with a better answer as a result. Now, now if, if we're going to do ethical guidance, we're, we're going to do it quick. But that doesn't mean we should shortcut the co-design or the lived experience or any of those other things. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting it should be diktat. I'm suggesting we should do it together quickly. Having worked in NHS statutory services for many years and now being in the third sector, I can assure you there is great agility and an ability to work quickly and, and, uh, and we would be more than happy to do and work with you on that. Um, a few more kind of specific questions um, around PPE. Um, obviously, this is an issue that has created a lot of interest um, yesterday, the last few days around availability of masks and uh, Jean Freeman, Cabinet Secretary, commenting on that. Is there anything you'd like to give our audience in terms of reassurance of availability of PPE in Scotland? I think there's three elements of the PPE challenge. There is supply, distribution, and then use. So supply is strong. We're not complacent about that because the global uh, pandemic has caused every country to look for PPE. So Germany and Austria are looking for it as well as us. But our supply chains are strong and robust, and we have today supply. Now, that you'll have to ask me again in a week if those chains are still robust because we have orders in, and we, but we can't guarantee that the order from China will arrive exactly on the day we want it because we, that's impossible to guarantee. But the NHS procurement people, both in Scotland and UK-wide, are working very hard to make sure we have all of that supply. But the present stock levels are good. The distribution into the National Health Service has always been good. The distribution to the social care sector hasn't always been what it should be, and that has got much better over the last two weeks. It, in the main, because the PPE wasn't, we didn't have a chain into the, into the social care sector for PPE because it hasn't been needed at this uh, level that we now need to have it at. So that's got a lot better. The, it's not perfect and we still hear of occasional hotspots, but there are now our email addresses, phone numbers, local management in place that should be able to escalate that to get everybody the PPE they need. And anybody who hasn't should, should know that email address and the phone number so they can get it. The, the third bit, though, and the bit that I think is the trickiest, is the guidance and the use of PPE. When should you wear it? What should you wear? When are you at risk? When are you not at risk? Because PPE is not one thing. The, the media would have you believe that PPE is this, this just one amorphous thing. It's, it's not. It's 20 different things. And then you're faced with different scenarios about what you should use. So we've tried to produce guidance on NHS Inform and Health Protection Scotland and other organisations have videos about how you should do it, what you should use. The chief nurses, the four chief nurses of Scotland have put together, four chief nurses of the UK have put together very good guidance and information about how to do that and how to make a judgment about what you should wear to protect yourself and what you should use to protect those you serve. 
So I think we're in a much better place than we were even two weeks ago. But it's not perfect and it will continue to be a challenge for all of us. And it, but the core is that people should feel safe at their work. They should feel safe individually. They should feel safe for their families. And they should also feel that they're not harming those that they seek to serve. And I, I think we're in a better place than we were. We've had a few specific questions um, from uh, members asking about um, care workers still going into houses, not wearing masks. Are we any further forward on that issue, Jason? So if a care worker wants to wear a mask going into a house, they can do so, and that mask is available. What I would tell you is that the evidence around mask wearing is about you protecting others with them. So if you wear the mask, you protect other people, unless they have symptoms. And if they don't have symptoms, it's quite hard for them to spread the virus, even if they have it. So most of the evidence suggests the virus is not spread by asymptomatic people. So if that person you're in charge of or serving or looking after, or whoever they are, if they have no symptoms, you, you will not be facing droplet spread from them. Because remember, this virus isn't just in the air. You, you require to breathe it in or you require to ingest it. You can't get it through your skin. So if you wish a mask to make you feel safer, that mask is available. The counter to that, of course, is that masks are not without risk. You've got to put them on and off. You've got to, you've got to touch your face to get them on and off. So the, the principal thing you should do is hand wash always. Hand wash before you put them on, hand wash when you take them off. Don't touch your mouth, don't touch your nose and your eyes. So the mask is, it, there is some evidence that masks give a false sense of security. So we need to be very careful. The mask is available and if you feel better with it on, you should wear it. But if, if the person is asymptomatic and you're dropping off meals on wheels or if you're going into the kitchen and chatting with social distance, I, 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 don't, I don't think the mask is required in that setting. And if I were going into a house to drop something off or to chat to somebody in a social care setting, I, would, I wouldn't need, need a mask for that. If the person were symptomatic, all the rules change. And if you're providing very close up social care, so if you're changing a dressing or if you're brushing somebody's teeth or then the rules again change. A very specific question from a person working in an ASN high school. And part of their role is in, in personal care with the young people who themselves are not social distancing. Should, we, should there be PPE available to staff working in those circumstances? That's a, that's a difficult question. My wife's a, a teacher in, in, in a, not a dissimilar environment in, in North Lanarkshire. I think there is, there, are, there is now increasing guidance for each of these slightly more sub-levels of where we started. So for the police, for... Uh, children's homes, for foster parents, for each of these elements. Again, remember the risk, you have, to, you have to think common sense. So the risk is droplet spread from symptomatic people. So the most important thing is to wash your hands. Break the transmission of the virus by washing your hands. If you can, get the kids to wash their hands. If you can, get them not to cough in each other's face, all of that. Symptomatic shouldn't be at school at all. They should be at home, self-isolated. Home isolation for, for the whole house, if anybody is symptomatic. If they are asymptomatic, the chances of spread are much, much, much lower. However, you should still do your best to socially distance. You should do your best to make sure you wash your hands. And if wearing a mask in that environment makes you feel better, if you, if you think the risk is high enough, then that should be available to you. 
I probably wouldn't in that setting, but if you think it's safer for you, then you should. Okay. I'd like to ask a question around autism. Um, we've heard from the National Autistic Society from Scotland that whilst the guidance now has been extended at UK level, um, and they have had confirmation from the Scottish Government that Scotland is included, that people um, with a learning disability can exercise more than once a day outside with a health need. But they've heard stories of police challenging families and that the guidance mentions that ideally you should, should, you're, you should have a care plan agreed with a medical professional. And clearly not everyone has that. Is there anything in terms of guidance around that issue that you could give us today, Jason? I, I sound a little bit like a broken record, Kath. Leaving your front door is risk every time you do it. So, so let's not pretend it's not. So, so it might be small, but it is still risk. So all of the guidelines presently are about reducing the curve, reducing the spread of the virus. And that needs the whole population to do stuff. None of us want it. None of us want anything to do with it. But that's the risk. Now, if you have a care reason to leave home more than once, then the police will understand that. The police are being very light touch to those who are telling them, I've really got to go and see my mum because I'm the only person who can care for her, or I've got to, this is my dog, I need to take it out twice a day, or whatever. So the police are not going to arrest you or give you a fixed penalty notice if you give them a reasonable response and you're reasonable with them. And those conversations are going on all the time. The police are, however, being stronger on those who are having house parties and singing and dancing in the street in groups. That's not what I think your questioner is doing. So I would be very surprised if the police did anything other than have a very sensible conversation with that individual and that individual should tell the truth and, and move on. I'd be very surprised if anything happened. But let me say again, if you leave your home, that increases the risk to the population. It's the difference between health and public health. This virus allows us to think what, what you let, when you go to public health school, which I did, when you go to public health school, lecture number one is the difference between how you take your asthma inhaler to help yourself and how you get a vaccine to help the population. These are two different things. So what we're doing now is beyond the asthma inhaler to help your own health. What we're doing now is population measures to save lives. So the, the difference is illustrated by, so, so I, I alienated the whole mountain bike community about a week ago when I said exercise was not for recreation and you shouldn't be going mountain biking. It was taken a little bit out of context. I mean, kayaking and hill walking and everything else. Now, if you take the individual example of an individual mountain biker or let's call them a Monroe bagger, let's say it's a hiker, and they say, I can leave my house, I can go and not meet a single soul, I can walk for six hours, come back, and I haven't seen anybody. Why am I not allowed to do that? Well, you're not allowed to do it because you're right, the individual risk for you is tiny. If everybody does it, people die. It's as simple as that. That's the difference between health and public health. And, and this, the, the, the ability to not be selfish is what this pandemic requires us to do. We have to think about the whole population health as well as our own family and us as individuals. And nobody understands that better than Alliance members, I don't think. That public health, it is understood by the people who watch and listen to this. I'll come back to public health in a moment because I want to ask you a bit about testing. Um, and what's the most recent information about testing of frontline staff, Jason, in Scotland? Where are we up to at the moment? 
So testing is a very interesting subject and a long subject to do justice to. Let, let's be clear what we're using it for and what it does. We use testing for three things. To test the very sick, to surveil the virus, to see where it is and how uh, much it is in the society and the world, and for essential workers to get them back to work. The test is not a panacea. The, the test takes 24 hours. It, it tells you you had the virus or not on the day you took it. It doesn't tell you anything about the past or the future. So if you test me today, this is, what day is this, Wednesday? So you, you test me today, I get it back on Thursday, it's negative. Okay, say I'm a key worker. There's symptoms in my house and you tested me on Wednesday and now on Thursday I get my test back and it's negative. I think, great, let's go to work because I don't have the virus. It doesn't tell you if I had it on Thursday and it doesn't tell you if I get it when I come back home or on the Friday. So I have to not come home. So I have to stay in a hotel or I have to stay in student accommodation or something at the hospital. So, so the, the test is not what people think the test is. It, it doesn't help us that much. The other problem is there's no treatment for this virus. So if you get tested positive for this virus, we don't do anything different to you. We don't give you the magic drug that we've been keeping a secret. There is no drug. What we do is we support you to get better with a respiratory pneumonia caused by this coronavirus. Now the testing will help us cohort you in the COVID-19 section, so, so that helps. But, but there is no, it's not like a chest x-ray. We don't have the chest x-ray that says, oh look, it's, it's binary, it's yes, no, there's tumor, there's not tumor, there's pneumonia, not pneumonia, here's the treatment. It, it, it's not that. So testing is crucial and important and helps us, but it is only one part of a big section that helps us protect the population and treat the population as best we can. Are we able to test as we would wish to, Jason? Are we approaching a time where the availability of that testing will improve in Scotland? Where, yes. Now, we, t we can test anybody who needs it. Okay. We have a question um, specifically um, about care homes. Um, will we be testing in care homes? We already are. We've been testing in care homes for weeks. So we, we test the first few cases in care homes and we test social care workers in that way I've just described about getting people back to work. But remember what I said, it, it's a one day binary test. It, it doesn't tell you about tomorrow or the day after or the day after. So, so if there are symptoms in your house, you can't go home if you've had a negative test. If you've had a positive test, now you need to stay home. So, so the key thing is symptoms, get better, lie on a sofa, drink lots of fluids, take paracetamol, get better. The vast majority of people get better from this virus, which has been lost somewhere, I think, in all of the coverage that we've had. What we really need is an antibody test. We need a test that will tell you whether you've had it and whether you are immune to it. No country in the world has an antibody test. They are all exceptionally unreliable. You can buy one on Amazon if you wish. It's got a 15% chance of giving you the right answer, so don't waste your money. The assays, the scientific assays in there, I'm afraid, are not right. We announced today that we're going to start uh, testing more in care homes. The clinical advice is that won't help us treat people better because there's no treatment. Well, what it will do is allow us to cohort more, it will allow us to reassure families, it will allow us to talk more intelligently to those families, 
but the test doesn't lead to to treatment because there is no treatment. Are we looking at patterns of infection, Jason, in terms of um, we've heard reports that there seems to be an increase amongst black and ethnic minority populations and staff. Is that something that we're looking at actively in Scotland and also the impact um, in, in terms of, of, of men and women and, and rates of infection? Obviously, we that's are. a we're looking at it. UK, UK wide. So I was on a, a four country call last night with the other senior clinical advisors of the four UK countries and one of the big pieces of work that they're doing for us, the chief nurse in England is leading it on black and ethnic minority infections. It, there is no scientific reason that we know of that the virus would individually attack different ethnicities. That doesn't mean it, it couldn't happen and we need to look. The, the instinctive answer is we think the southeast of England proportionately has more black and ethnic minority health and social care workers, and therefore the numbers are higher amongst them. That's our instinct, that would be our hypothesis, but we are doing work to work that out. Around the world, the men are definitely being more affected than women. The numbers here are not as stark, they're about 55-45, which seems to be Scotland's favoured dis uh, percentage distribution for, for everything. That was a joke, Kath. Not funny. Okay. I'll keep trying. The 55% the men and 45% women, the, the theory in the Far East is that that's about smoking. So many, many men, many, many more men smoke in Southeast Asia than women. And that would suggest that the virus, because it's respiratory, is attacking them more. In gender, uh, Scotland, one of our members have... have developed a report looking at the impact of COVID-19 and the restrictions in place actually having a higher effect on women than men. So as we start to come out of this phase um, and the response and go back to my earlier question, I think it's very important to involve third sector organisations around the ethics and the response in terms of that uh, beyond the traditional scientific community. Um, we had a question from our members saying um, around epidemiology and the testing, for example. Would you be supportive of that, Jason, that, that the knowledge, not only the published research, but the knowledge that is being gathered by third sector organisations about the pattern, about the impact, not only the rates of infection, but the response? Of course, that's a, that's a different question to the one you asked previously. So the, yes. so the harm from the countermeasures is an entirely different question. So the harm from the coronavirus is one thing. The harm from the countermeasures is a, is a fascinating study. And I, I instinctively would think that probably does affect young people, children and women disproportionately because inequality tends to do that. And inequality is what the countermeasures increase. There, there isn't any question about that. So this, this virus is not evenly spread in its effects. It, it will affect the poor more. It will affect those who don't have gardens more. It, it, it's, it's nasty. And what we are having to do to recover from it is also not without cost. So any information that helps us to know how to counter those, to think about the way out, to think about what the third sector and other supports will have to do. I have a, I have a connection to the Glasgow City Mission in, in Glasgow for the, for the homeless. And I, I worry every day what, what we're doing to that really vulnerable community 
and how, how we're affecting it. They had a case very, very early on in the pandemic and they had to close their night shelter. So, so just the single effects of that case are, are horrific for that vulnerable community. And, and to go back to public health, I mean, obviously, this is a very interesting time where Public Health Scotland came into being at the beginning of this month during this COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about Public Health Scotland's response across those three harms that you describe? Well, you, could, you couldn't have asked for a, a, a more interesting time to invent a new public health organisation in the world. Remember what we did initially, though, is Public Health Scotland is an amalgamation of a number of other pieces of the puzzle that already existed. And, and hasn't been able, because of this crisis, to, to think too much about what the future might look like. But it has brought together the data analysts, Health Protection Scotland, and some other public health leadership elements into the one place. I think it's good. I think the leadership of Angela Leach is really encouraging, and she is, she is engaged at a senior level about what we're doing. She will, she will have to change that engagement in the next few weeks and months as we think about the, the exit strategy which may be very long, and how we protect those vulnerable groups at the high end, but also how we restart the economy, how we get the inequality to recover, how we get schools reopened. All, all of that will have to be, will have to have a public health response. It won't just be public health. It will have to be every sector of our society, from climate change to social work to education and business. But Public Health Scotland is, is engaged in those processes already, and will have to I think, hit the ground running, for lack of a better description. Um, there is a, 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 a subgroup, um, a cell, I believe it's called, around social mitigation with third sector input. And again, an offer to be in, involved and to engage our membership and views within that group as well, alongside Voluntary Health Scotland. Um, you, you mentioned the future and, and, and we're, we're, drawing, we're drawing towards the end, Jason, and, and I'd like us to talk a little bit about the future. We have a question here around, do you think the pandemic will lead to a paradigm change where the NHS is no longer viewed as the sole answer to providing health care, but the third sector becomes equal partners in providing essential report support? And I'm thinking here of, um, in terms of healthcare improvement, John Berwick's third era, um, perhaps not the third era that we envisaged, and Third Horizon and from International Future Forum and others, do you see what's the transformative shift where we some of the learning that we've been experiencing, some of the new ways of working? At a very simple level, you mentioned me and me consultations now in primary care. Will that become the new normal as we come out of this lockdown situation and, and become back, uh, back more into the community? I think the first thing to say is that pandemics are not good for you. There is no good in the pandemic. People are dying. Families are suffering. Families are grieving. My uh, wife's uncle is COVID positive in a hospital bed. This is not good news. None of it is good news. However, can you make the best of a pandemic to do some transformation of society for the best? Yes, I think you can. And I think there are some granular examples of that. NHS near me is an obvious one. The, the way we have had to integrate with health, social care and third sector organisations, I think has been accelerated, particularly in a more remote and rural environments where services have had to step up. I've, I, and the other thing that, that I think is real is the community engagement, the community spirit, for lack of a better description, from the Thursday night clap through to everybody in my, uh, so I live in a, in a converted 
house and there's, there's different properties and everybody has left their mobile phone number on a wee card in the front door. Think, things as simple as that. The rainbows on the windows that kids are drawing. The fact that families have, have learned new ways of connecting. I, I think my mother is fed up with speaking to me, frankly, on FaceTime. She's seen more of me in the last six weeks than she's ever seen in our life. So, so I, I hope that some of that will remain. Some of that community spirit will stay. I, I think your broader, almost psychological point of what it does to society, I, I don't think we know. If you look at the history of pandemics, every pandemic has led to some change in society because business has been broken by it. Economies have had to recover. Things have had to be thought of differently. So I, I think when we have time to reflect to have a post-mortem, which I hope will be about learning, not about blame, and how we think about rebuilding. I think there will be opportunities there about how we do that across sectors, how we do it for the better, how we do it to reduce inequalities in our societies. How, and I think we have some lessons within it that already we can begin to see work. And I think the more granular things won't disappear. I mean, I can't imagine the GPs of Scotland throwing away their NHS near me when this is when this is over for example you'd mentioned recently um that the plans when when they do appear and we're not at that stage yet to begin to come out of this lockdown situation that we would look across the different nations is that still your view jason that scotland would have its own particular exit from this this lockdown i think the science will inform that uh, and the decision makers will decide not to not to pass the buck it, we've tried as far as possible to stay together as four countries, and that has worked really well, both at a clinical advisor level meeting twice a week in the evenings, to the politicians who have been talking relatively consensually, whether you believe me or not, but relatively consensually about what we should do. Carlisle and Dumfries are not that far apart, so it, it wouldn't seem sensible to depart in a big way. I think on the exit, things may get a little more regional, I have, I have no inside knowledge of what that might look like, but the, the virus is, is definitely affecting London, Liverpool, some other big English cities differently. So it may be that Wales need to do something slightly different from Belfast, and, and our decision makers will make those choices for us based on the advice of SAGE, which is the big UK scientific advisory group. But we also have our own Scottish advisory group led by Professor Andrew Morris, who many of you will remember from his time as chief scientist, to, to think about what this will look like for Scotland's businesses and Scotland's education system and Scotland's health and social care system. And presumably we're also looking across Europe and internationally about how other countries are doing it. And we, you and I were just reflecting the last time we met was in Sweden and Sweden are taking a very different approach. Um, is there learning coming through at the moment from those other countries that are in There is. There's a number of, of networks, both existing and new, to make that happen. The, the World Health Organization are, are hosting a lot of that. They had a big day yesterday when they published a new strategic framework for COVID-19. The, the interesting thing about the WHO, of course, is they need to be relevant to 194 countries. So what they say has to matter in Somalia as well as Syria and Scotland. So, so it's slightly tricky sometimes to contextualize what they have to say because they're at such a high level that they have to be relevant to New Zealand as well as us. But, but there are some things we can learn. There are some good things and difficult things. So you, Japan opened, opened some countermeasures over the last week and have had to close again. So we want to be very careful that a second spike and more infections 
don't catch us out. So we've got to be gradual. We've got to be science-led. And then the decision makers have got to make those choices based on our individual demographics and our numbers. Okay, we're, we're heading towards close, Jason. And I have just two final questions for you. What, what's keeping you well? How are you hanging together in these days? That's very kind of you, Kath. I'm, I'm absolutely fine. My job, compared to what some people are doing and facing every day, is relatively straightforward. I get to talk out loud in a straight line. It's not always coherent, but it's, uh, it's, it's relatively easy compared to being a frontline social care worker or a third sector unpaid carer. Or I, I understand completely the privileges and the nature of what I do for a living. The, the, pace, the pace is difficult, I have to be honest. The pace of decision making, the number of decisions and advice being given to the senior politicians is hard. I keep myself well by having a very close family. My wife, my mum and dad and my sister keep my feet, if anybody had any doubt, my feet are firmly nailed to the ground. And uh, I eat three meals a day and I run 5K. So if I can do those things, then I'm, uh, I'm in relatively good spirits. And finally, is there any, anything that you feel you haven't had a chance to say to our audience today, Jason, or anything you'd like to close with to emphasise? I think it's the I think it's a cliche, but I think it's to thank uh, everybody who is engaged in this mission. And and I've I've said a couple of times that this virus is evil. It, it is. It's it's a horrible virus, and the virus is killing people. It's affecting lives. It's destroying uh, swathes of our community. It's nasty, and we need every hand on deck, and that includes the unpaid carers in our community, the intensive care doctors and nurses. It includes the managers in the National Health Service who often get a hard time, but have stepped up and worked hard to mobilize the health and social care system. They've built a new 300 bed hospital in an exhibition center for heaven's sake. So, so the, the, the mobilization of the third sector, the health and social care sectors right across the board has been astonishing to me. That I, I didn't believe we could do what we have done in the last six weeks. And I'm very grateful to everybody who's helped with that, those who are watching live and those who will watch subsequently. So that, that's my key message. Apart from wash your hands and stay at home. Thank you, Jason. And um, Jason has, has offered to answer any questions that we haven't managed to cover today. I'm conscious that there's been some questions been coming in live that I've not been able to get access to as we're speaking. So they will be forwarded to Jason's office for, for a reply and we will circulate that through the Alliance website. Um, this podcast has been recorded and will be quickly up on our Alliance website, along with a whole range of links and resources around COVID-19. We have a community in action series that's beginning that, that gathers stories of health and social care staff and their response in these times. We continue with our Humans of Scotland series, which focusing on how people are coping and surviving again in COVID-19 days, and also a whole range of other programmes and information linking to our partners. So I'd like to close now. Again, thank you, Jason, and thanks to everyone for, for your questions. Thanks for listening in and um, take you care. You can find the Alliance Live podcast thank on you. all major podcast streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Alliance Live also produce webinars, video interviews, and case studies. Watch these by visiting www.alliance-scotland.org.uk forward slash live. To follow along regularly with Alliance Live content, use the hashtag Alliance Live on Twitter.